Hello and welcome to the Sea of Startups, where we dive into the stories behind the startups in Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin, Managing Partner of Indelible Ventures. Now, if you're a founder or funder looking to learn more about what drives the startups in Southeast Asia, this podcast is for you. We're about to sit down with founders to uncover the unique insights into the origins and motivations behind launching their startups. We'll uncover the stories behind the struggles, the ups, the downs guided from the view of an entrepreneur. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's show. All right. I am very happy today because my guest is Chris Fong, the co-founder of Fee5Fo. For those of you who don't know, Fee5Fo is a technology-first co-farming company that focuses on the empowering of the next generation of progressive farmers throughout ASEAN. Thank you very much for being here, Chris. Hi, thanks, Kevin. And thanks for having me, actually. Excellent. Excellent. So I ask every founder that I ever meet, I always am intrigued by the founding story. So take me back. What what got you on the entrepreneurial journey on the first place and what led to FIFIFO? Right, right. Actually, uh, this is a story that is, this is the favorite story for my, my co-founder. Um, <clears throat> so me and my co-founder, we are very old time friends. So I've, I've known each, uh, we've known each other for more than almost two decades now uh, and he's married to my friend-in-law uh, so he's he's a serial entrepreneur he started his uh, you know business when he was 18 just fresh out of school a media company and he slowly grew it uh, into you know quite a powerhouse and yeah eventually they managed to sell it to WPP uh, which is one of the biggest uh, you know, media companies uh, sure. in, in, in the world um, uh, and uh, I've always been the corporate side of things, right? So 12 years of being in the hamster wheel, uh, focused a lot on technology, uh, process re-engineering, systems design, et cetera, et cetera. And we've always had a very healthy respect towards, uh, you know, uh, for each other and what we do. And uh, around 2017, that was when he finally exited uh, from his, his sale because once well, when he sold, he had a five-year retainer to stay on as the regional CEO uh, for then uh, Gray Digital. And I was on my way out of uh, GIC, which was my last corporate job. And I was heading into a master's in technopreneurship uh, in NTU. So around that time, we were talking, you know, what do we want to do next with our lives? And you know, naturally, we started talking about whether or not we want to come together to do something. That was when he kind of suggested that we should look into agriculture. Interestingly, my first response to him was, you know, he must be mad. Both of us are city boys. I have personally never grown anything that survived. You know, I'm not sure about him, but, you know, I, I have black thumbs at that time. So how, how would we possibly be able to do something in agriculture? And uh, his response to me was, you know, I know what you mean, right? But, you know, let's not write it off immediately. I've got a couple of uh, very close friends in Malaysia. He's Malaysia, mm-hmm. Malaysian, uh, who are smallholder farmers themselves. And I know of these two guys, right? They have, uh, you know, been together and they have started uh, farms and operating farms for a good four or five years as far as I knew back then. And from what I know is that they have done this four times, each time 
it was going through the same cycle, right? It started with a bang. They found some rich investor who has land, who has money. Uh, they ended up just being an employee because the guy who was saying, you're using my land, you're using my money. So I take 95% of the profits. Mm-hmm. You just, you guys go and do, right? And, and it always starts this way. It starts with a bang. They build up, they grow. The first couple of cycles, fantastic. They sold we saw, I, I've been to them, some of their funds, so I know that they can grow. So they grew things like tomatoes, they grew things like cucumber, okra, and they did a very good job. But interestingly, is after always around two plus three years, things start to come down and then it fails. And then the cycle starts over and over again. And, you know, it, it, that picked my interest. And you know what? I know, I know these two guys. I know what they've been through. So let's go and find out from them what their problems were. So what ended up was we had about four months, I believe, you know, flying up to KL every other week. And whenever we are there, we would, you know, just lock ourselves up in, in an Airbnb for four months. Mm-hmm. And we would really talk about, you know, for, not four months, four days. And we would, we would not step up. We would, we would order food in. We would just really just huddle and, and, and talk. And I think that at the end of that four months was a very clear understanding on what most or all, in fact, all smallholder farmers uh, face, you know, which is basically the, the key value chain, you know, risk issues that we help solve for uh, farmers. Basically, they lack funds, they lack land, they don't know, they don't, they seldom have the know-how for modern farming. And even if they do, you know, they don't have the access to funds to build them. Uh, and last of all, market. And because these smaller farmers, they are very small teams. They are the farmers themselves. They are the they are their CFO. They are their you know inventory mm-hmm. manager. They are their sales manager. When they handle one thing, they have no time for others. And usually the cycle goes this way is because they find themselves very entrenched in the operations, and you know there's no time to really go and build you know uh, more sales cycle. So the problem with the current you know environment and, and, and the dynamics of the industry here is that if you go to a buyer and they say, I've got ready harvest in hand, such great stuff. The guy knows that you got to sell or these things are perishable, right? Mm-hmm. So there are no qualms, you know, undercutting you. You have ready harvest in hand. Okay, la, five ringgit, la, take it or leave it. And, 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 and that, that kind of forms that vicious cycle. You know, they have got one sale which isn't, which doesn't bring them enough money. They don't have enough money for the next cycle. They start cutting corners. Yields start to drop. Quality starts to drop. And that basically spells the beginning of the end. So these are all the problems that we uncovered from them. And we realized that this is actually a process issue. This is an issue that can be solved through digital means, through standardization, through kind of like a shared service where they don't have to pay the full amount for full team, full facilities, but can benefit from a larger organization that has got all of that and they pay on a per use or as a service kind of basis. Mm-hmm. That, that, that was the first, you know, uh, I suppose, um, motivation or the first uh, inspiration for what co-farming is today. Okay, so you 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 basically took your 
each of your entrepreneurial and your corporate background and started recognizing the process flows associated with it, with, with it. Not, necess- not necessarily immediately on kind of the modern farming, but also, but really on kind of those process pain points along the pathway in regards to land, access to funds, the go-to-market, the undercutting on the prices is, you know, as, as you highlighted, because they're perishable, you always hear the story within agriculture that the small hold guys uh, always get undercut and the big players are kind of flooding the market. Uh, so, then what's the next step? So you look at you look at this and you identify the problem statements. And so how do you come about building the solution then? Yeah. So on high side, it felt like it was, uh, it, it's going to sound like it's, it's, a, it's a very structured approach, right? <laughs> but in reality, it was just going along and realize that we have a certain risk point here. How can we manage it? I mean, the easiest uh, solution to land on was okay if they don't have modern you know uh, crop systems and infrastructure then one of the one of the things that we can do is to take a leaf out from co-working or central kitchen let's build those farms and lease these ready to farm spaces mm-hmm. so that they immediately you know that high capex is translated to a monthly affordable reasonable opex but then, you know, if you start thinking into the process and looking from the angles of this uh, smallholder farmer, you will realize that you cannot simply just give them a ready greenhouse with, you know, all the crop systems set up and expect that, you know, uh, they will achieve success. What will they grow? If you let them decide, you know, what they were to grow, uh, they could end up growing things that are not profitable, you know, uh, leasing a, 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 a space that may not commensurate with the profitability of a crop, and it, 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 so so that kind of that kind of led, led us to decision that okay we have to curate uh, the crops and and mm-hmm. you know make sure that the farm space that they lease is for a curated crop that standardized for crop growing of say melon or chili. Mm-hmm. Then we started asking ourselves, okay, then in that case, how about your yeah, agri inputs? We have to standardize them. We will standardize the seeds, we will standardize the inputs, and that all has to dovetail into their SOP. How do we do that? Okay, can we have digital SOPs that some way they can access easily? So everybody growing the same crop has got the same set of instructions that they have to follow. So fine, then our system probably needs a, a way to easily create and a bite-sized, understandable SOPs that if we uh, were to update in one place centrally, everybody gets it. That means something that's in the back office, something on a mobile. How about finances? Do we give them kind or do we give them money? If we give them mm-hmm. money, they'll run away. So, but if we give them kind, then it's also not you know, the most optimized because you end up giving the same set of inputs over and over again, whether or not previous cycle they overuse or they, mm-hmm. they had some savings. So the preferred is to give them a, uh, a, a, an amount of money and they manage it so that they have accountability. They know that you know, this is what I have to buy. I have so, so much left over from last cycle so I can buy less this cycle. I have so much or I've overused on this particular uh, item, but I've underused on this particular So I balance it up. This is then you know, the preferred way. Then that, but we cannot give them cash. So we need to be a digital wallet with a digital balance mm-hmm. where the money is in our bank, but the balance is for them to manage and so on and so forth. So all of these was just basically thinking from their angle and their challenges, how would they behave versus what do we need to manage in terms of risk yeah. from the entire value chain? And that's how we figured out, 
or at least you know built uh, our digital platform, which we call DDFN, mm-hmm. uh, to what it is today. Okay, I I love the systematic breaking down of 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 these points, but I I do wonder when you when you talk about standardizing. I mean, it's one thing to standardize the inputs, like the seeds, uh, the and what the anticipated output is, but when you start trying to standardize the SOP in regards to the cultivation of the crops, you know, you you start running into the 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 common problem with that any company that tries to standardize procedures is are you, to ensure that people are following it to the letter. So when you look at that component of it, how do you ensure that people are going to follow the instructions, that they're going to read and make sure that they're doing one, two, three in the proper order with the proper measures, et cetera, et cetera? That is one of the questions that we ourselves asked. So and 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 you now start to realize, right? As you go through into the details, yeah. they say detail. The devil is in the details. It's oh, true. Yeah. As you go into it, you start thinking, hey, then how about this? How about that? One of the key questions was, in fact, like what you said, how then do we ensure, even if we give them digital SOPs, even if we build digital processes that guide them necessarily towards a direction, doesn't mean that they follow. Mm. Two things. One is. Do they know how to use? There's a digital process, there's a structure, there's a flow. But if you, if, I mean, the user always manages to break a system, right? You build it in a way, you give it to them, the first thing, pop, they find a way to break it. Oh, yeah. So that's the thing. One is, can it be intuitive enough for them to use it the way it's intentioned? And, if, and what are some of these recent controls that we have in place to ensure that it is not being used as uh, in a way that we didn't, didn't intention for it to, do, to be used. That's number one. And number two is how then do we have better control and enforcement of standardization? So one is obviously building our DDFN process flows in a, in a very intuitive way using language and lingo which smallholder farmers understand. Right, rentals very easy. Pay workers very easy. Pay them harvest pickers very easy. Start cycles, start stages. Record your harvest. Assign roles to workers. In, uh, record how much you have picked, sort, packed, and submit for delivery. So we use lingo and use processes that they themselves are used to, and um, they are familiar with, so that you know they already can anticipate. Number one, number two is the decision to build nucleus coal farms instead of bringing our system like what many uh, other agri-tech players do who focuses on building a hydroponic system or indoor system mm-hmm. uh, is to build a nucleus coal farm 20-25 acres is the sweet spot we built these farm spaces within our own parameters and these agropreneurs and workers then reside and work in our coal farms where we have crop experts and farm op admin executives in there helping them, guiding them on a daily basis. And uh, to also add on to the processes, we have got a number of WIPs or or, or progress meetings a week Mm -hmm. where by crop, we are meeting these agropreneurs and talking about first one, performance and progress. Second one, what the key SOP steps for the next week. So that's how we manage it. So think like an accelerator program. You know, mm-hmm. I actually took this 
uh, inspiration from Entrepreneur First, which I actually you know participated in some time before I started Three Five Four. Okay. Entrepreneur First takes two strangers, put them together, form a founder team, mm-hmm. and they are expected to then figure out what is the company that they will found and what's the problem they will solve. How are they going to solve it? And you can imagine that in this kind of scenario, a lot of guidance is required. So it was a three months program. Everybody went to the same place. They have got entrepreneur in residence, and we call our crop experts ergonomists in residence mm-hmm. to basically guide them on a weekly basis. You know, progress, setting goals, setting this week you have to accomplish one that we make sure that everybody's on track. So that's how that's how we we run things in co farms. Okay, so you you maintain you maintain your own staff on location at all times to where you're it you you essentially you essentially have um, these you know the agripreneurs, independent operators, what are they, the the terminology that you that you put to it? They're ba- they're basically coordinating with you with your staff. So it's if you were, if you were to launch multiple locations, each location is going to end up having these on on site FIFA direct employees. Yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. and it's a very sustainable model. One or two agronomists in residence that is well versed mm. in the crop that that coal farm grows can basically support one coal farm of 10, 15, 20 acres. Okay, okay. Mm. And so th- then, uh, you know, when you when you when you look at that twenty to twenty five acres, you're you're partitioning it up. Is there kind of a rule of thumb of how much acreage an individual uh, can can take on? Yeah. Uh, within horticulture, which is um, short cycle cash crops, mm-hmm. um, I think the sweet spot will be the crops that grow on open farms. I think we call them open farm spaces. Okay. Usually have good unit economies at two acres. Whereas the greenhouse crops, those that are growing under a greenhouse, um, these, fa- these farm spaces have good economies within uh, for one acre. So you, we usually have one acre greenhouse spaces, two acre open farm spaces. Currently, we have a two acre chili farm space and a one acre um, um, greenhouse farm space. And we're doing uh, R&D already on hydroponics greens, which mm-hmm. likely is going to be a one acre uh, greenhouse farm as well, farm space as well. Okay. Okay. So uh, am, I, am, I, am I understanding correct that like, because of the specifications of standardizing the inputs through the SOPs of the process down to the go-to-market, that you likely go product by product as as far as what you what you are putting in as capabilities, whether it's melons, uh, 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 leafy vegetables, whatever the case may be. You're essentially going one by one to make sure that you can standardize all of it. So when you're R and Ding, that's in order to introduce a new crop into uh, on, under the umbrella of E five O. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And what we have built essentially our proprietary technology platform makes this whole process easy. Our DDFN uh, helps us model a particular crop. So every aspect of cost and revenue is modeled in and we are able to do like, you know, cycle and cycle cash flow simulations for maybe up to five years to see how the P&L is like uh, to really figure out, okay, so this number of workers, this kind of uh, acreage and planting points, this set of inputs, uh, this amount of of, uh, crop cycle duration, how does Mm -hmm. these numbers play out with each other? Then of course the SOP uh, creation on a digitalized centralized uh, space uh, and most importantly you know DDFN is also our operating system where we uh, basically co- uh, 
you know, coordinate and have a, a view across all our agropinions, even though they are different farm spaces in different locations, to be able to see across what their needs are in terms of finances, pay workers and all that stuff, pay themselves, uh, mm -hmm. inventory purchases, uh, sales for delivery, etc., where we can batch them together and plan them and execute them as a batch so that we can achieve economies of scale and scope for them. So this is, this is how we basically manage it. Um, You're right, we, every crop we will have to trial, we will have to trial a particular SOP to make sure that that SOP works because garbage in, garbage out, right? What the sure. event effectively is, is a operating system that helps to make this all easy. But the content is still something that we have to develop. So yep. an SOP for a particular crop has to be fit for purpose, has to be high performing. Then we digitalize and standardize on that uh, on our platform and then manage it from there. Okay. And what role does IoT devices play into this? Do you, do you have devices that are measuring like the nutrients in the soil, uh, you know, maybe uh, cameras doing visual inspection? What, what level, to what extent are you incorporating these sort of technologies? At the beginning, we started with everything manual except for digitalized processes. So how they manage their finances, inventory, crop cycle, how they rep uh, record their harvest and submit that for sales. All of that data, all of that uh, process flows is managed through a mobile app, which they all mm -hmm. have to use. Uh, but the op farm operations is, is um, um, uh, manual steps, so to speak. But having said that, we are already using uh, modern crop systems like fertigation. So it, you can imagine huge water tanks. You, you mix the nutrients, but you turn on a pump and that, that kind of fertigates like 9,000 mm -hmm. planting points at the same time at a particular um, uh, EC. And, and when you turn the pump on for a fixed amount of time, uh, this, because we are using commercial you know, uh, systems, the dripper has a drip rate, you can easily calculate, okay, 10 minutes means uh, 300 ml. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so the SOP prescribes that you know, uh, from day 23 to day 42, uh, EC of 2.8 or 3.2, uh, 2,500 liters a day, uh, 300 ml at 10, at 8, 9, 10, 11, uh, 12 water, 2 water, 3, 4, easy. Again, you know, up to that kind of details. Mm -hmm. And the workers and the agropreneurs are then managing it manually. Um, and it's been working, it's working. But we also recognize that these are some, there are some of these areas which are high, uh, low efforts, easily automated, but very high risk if human errors is to occur. Things like mixing of nutrients, things like turning on the fertigation for, at the right time uh, for the right duration in, uh, of time. And these are the things that we are currently already working on for IoT automation. So uh, we're not there yet, but we are basically working on it. There are, lot, there are a lot of solutions mm. uh, you know, in, in the market that we could have possibly used, but we realized that they are also not really fit for purpose. I'll give you an example. Um, a very popular product, I'm not going to mention name, mm. uh, which a lot of uh, you know, farmers use. Uh, it's a small little device, but it costs like I think three to 5,000 ringgit a pop just for one feed line. And it goes by ratio, which means that 
you can what you set is how much water, how much nutrient solution. Mm-hmm. Meaning that water is always fine, but the nutrient solution has to be a it has to be a standard, not a variable. Then your ratio will work. One mm-hmm. is to two, five is to one. If your nutrient solution is a little, not always very consistent, you'll yeah. end up with the EC is always a little bit off. And that's always the problem because of how farms uh, work. You, you have one bag of A, one bag of B, you put it in the, in the nutrient mm-hmm. tank uh, you, and you, you, you basically look at the tank right, and realize that it's very low already or below the line. Then I just put two bags in, I just fill it up with water. It's never down to the exact science. It's always going to be a little different. So we thought that we could do something ourselves. So currently the team's working on IoT uh, um, deployment in these areas, basically nutrient mixing and fertigation start-stop. And we will be adding, and once we achieve these low-lying foods, we'll be adding on to it. Like for example, can we hook up to a weather station that mm-hmm. figures out it's going to rain mm. within the next two, three, four hours, then should we fertigate, should we not, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Okay. Okay. So I, I, I find that fascinating how you, how you've gone, how you've gone through all of that. When it comes to the actual farmland, are you the owner of the farmland? Are you leasing it out? So when you're talking about these 20 to 25 uh, acres uh, locations, is it you, is it your land or how are you coming across the land? Lease, but we do long-term lease. Long-term. Like for example, right now our pilot coal farm, we have 18 plus six. So okay. that's 24 years. And uh, you need that kind of long-term lease before you can justify any amount of CAPEX beyond yeah. just sprinklers. Sure. Uh, and that is really one of the problems that smaller farmers face. By themselves, they're not able to commit to this kind of leases mm-hmm. and the kind of land that they take is too small for, for, for that kind of leases as well. But as a coal farming entity who's yeah. running coal farms, whose business is to build ready farms, ready to farm spaces, we are in the position mm-hmm. to do that. And once we take down long-term lease, we're able to then put in the kind of necessary capex to, to build modern farms. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because so essentially you're able to aggregate a whole bunch of smallhold farmers into, into a single co-farming operation. So, you know, the a, a common thing is, you know, a person ends up doing it for a few years and then ends up wanting to do something else uh, or moving to the city or whatever the case may be. So mm-hmm. by having the aggregation, you're able to fill it in, replace it, maintain the economics relative to the capex that it took you to get there in the first place, yeah? Absolutely. So let's let's transition to the end of this uh, process flow, the go-to-market. So when you when you end up getting the output, how does FIFIFO enable the go-to-market of uh, of the end product, of the produce or the, the 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 fruits or vegetables? We do it like every commercial sales team, we hit the buyers. And we are biased at various levels, uh, you know, depending on the crop, depending on the, the yield uh, that is coming out from the farm spaces as well. Uh, and we basically market our crops. So this is a marketing function which smaller farmers couldn't have afforded or have their headcount for themselves, which we now have for them. And, the, and because of 
us as our core business is in the business of standardization, we can go to these buyers and say, you know, we have farm spaces that are all built like this. We've got farm spaces that are producing yield uh, that, like that. You know, all of them are going to look like this. All of them is going to be this weight, this kind of quality. We've got great A, of course, we have got great B. Let's not be unrealistic about it. Uh, you know, uh, but you can imagine that this is, this. You can, you can be rest assured that the quality is going to be like this. The percentage of great A, non-great A is going to be around this these uh, levels as well. We go to these buyers with this kind of confidence, this kind of data, we're able to show them, okay? Uh, we have got two plots of, uh, you know, melons right now. This is the schedule of uh, harvest and delivery across these two plots. Um, you know, um, how does this fit your buying cycle? So we have data points. We hit them with all these, uh, uh, you know, data and we plan with them. And many of these buyers, they appreciate that as well because then it's refreshing for someone to not just turn up at your door with something to sell. Uh, we can work with them to anticipate this kind of cycle and balance out the other buying channels with other people. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay, okay, okay. So looking forward, you know, because you, essentially you're, you're, in a, you're in an area that is relevant, not just at the Malaysia level, not just at the regional level, but really a global problem. So when you're looking forward and saying grand vision, how do you find success, define success as an organization when you're looking from this grand vision standpoint? Mm, good question. Some days I think that this is uh, our vision is too small. Some things, some days, some days I think our vision is too big. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. It depends on the, on how you decide that you wake up from the bed. I think that's a pretty, we, that's a pretty common thing for most entrepreneurs. It depends upon which side of the bed you woke up on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. Um, we've always been very faithful to the initial vision when we first, you know, started talking mm. about fee five four and putting the whole, uh, you know, model and and vision and mission together. Um, not just how we do things in terms of standardization, but also our goals. We've always wanted to be a region, or at least the first stop we know that we need to reach is a regional play. We want to be in every Southeast Asian country. Uh, we've done our numbers, we've done our modeling. You know, We feel that even at 5,000 acres of self-operated coal farms, it's a small, very small slice of the pie. Mm -hmm. And we want to also push it push that scale out through licensing because we believe that if it is a lucrative business for 354, it's going to be a lucrative business for someone else. Uh, we are able to model our, our license, our model and our technology together with all the crop models inside if you happen to be in the same country, the same climate uh, for someone to run white labor coal farms. So our targets have always been 5,000 acres of self-operated coal farms across six Southeast Asian countries in 10 years and 10 times that acreage through licensing. And that will basically uh, let us have, you know, two revenue streams that are almost equal 50-50%. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. How how much does it play? Because when you when you start talking about all the standardization and the SOPs, you 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 mentioned the the similarities in the climate, but you know when you look across Southeast Asia, there is a lot of variation in regards to what uh, what the natural environment is, what the monsoon and rainy seasons are. Mm. Um, how does that play into being able to update your protocols and SOPs for that type of expansion? Mm. Uh, very good question. 
And and like many things in in, in life, uh, you know, some parts you can bring along, some parts you can't. Mm. And and the parts that you can't tend to be also because in the, the other country, perhaps they grow. Uh, or they are suitable for growing very different things. Like Malaysia is a very healthy culture, short cycle cash mm-hmm. crop you know, kind of play. You won't be able to, you won't find, you know, uh, farmers or they are willing, you know, or is doing rice, corn, you know, mm-hmm. uh, wheat kind of farming, or, you know, where it's sure. large scale commodity food. Uh, but when you go to Indonesia, it's a different story. Everybody does that. You know, horticulture mm-hmm. is a very small piece. People are growing cassava, potatoes, corn, uh, many of these crop uh, rice and, and, and uh, uh, commodity crop cycle where the acreage is bigger, the margins are lower, and uh, the entire way of working, you know, uh, in terms of the crop cycle, the equipment that you use, the people mm-hmm. that you use are all different. For us, it basically are different opportunities, same core principles where we translate high capex to opex that's number one and two we manage the entire value chain risk through standardization of space and digital processes mm-hmm. we stick to these core principles wherever we go we just find where we can do this and i'll be the first one to say we don't necessarily need to keep to just farming how about higher upstream kind of process like for example in Indonesia we're looking at corn growing right now do we necessarily need to be corn growers or can we could be co-processing space where mm-hmm. we are targeting higher slightly higher ex-farm process players who don't have the money to buy machineries for separating corn kernel drying corn kernel helping them with it and let them deal with that 500 you know, corn farmers in that particular region. So as long as we stick to these principles, we're very, very clear on what we do. Different opportunities, yes, but same core principle, which is number one, KPEX to OPEX, number two, manage value change through standardization. Okay. Okay. So where, when you, when you look at the business, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a common question that I, that I ask most entrepreneurs is, you know, the, you, you always hear the, the, the topic of the metrics that matter, how do you manage towards metrics, these sort of things. Mm. When you look at your own business, do mm. you incorporate key metrics? And if so, how do you define them in order to, in the context of like reaching your goals? We do, but it's not complex things that people don't understand. Like, mm. it took me a while to understand one GMV and all that stuff. You know? It's a good <laughs> thing that I have a master's in technical leadership. Uh, for <laughs> us, because we have a fundamentally, although we're in a space of provide, we're in the business of providing space and technology mm. for standardization, the core business of our clients isn't growing. So necess- necessarily, our matrices are also pretty boring. Acreage and revenue per acre. <laughs> Revenue, yeah, yeah, which which is essential, which essentially yeah. boils down to like what your yeah. yield is and what your whether or not Correct. you're getting high value crops, yeah. Correct. How many okay. acres? Yeah, of coal farms or licensed coal farms. Mm. What's the revenue per acre of these coal farms? And of course, for the licensed one, translates up to the uh, profit sharing or the, the royalties uh, that comes with uh, the licensing model. Okay. So that that's basically it. Uh, how big is the licensing model at this point in time? Out of curiosity. We're working on it. it's a midterm opportunity. Okay. Um, um, 
I think you know the people who are suitable to be white labor co farm operators are necessarily uh, in Malaysia. Um, certain Malaysian authorities, there are many, many authorities and agencies that are running their own farm projects. Sure. Many of them aren't doing great. Uh, and we are already talking to three, you know, uh, North Corridor, uh, LCD in Sarawak, as mm-hmm. well as uh, Felder. Um, and, and they're all looking at, you know, whether or not our model and our DDFN can be used as the operating system model to, to run their farms. But these are midterm, midterm plays. You know? these, are, these are all agencies that don't move very fast either. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You will need to have people uh, on your side that can help push some buttons yeah. as well. Thankfully, yeah, we do have them. Uh, okay. Or uh, besides uh, uh, government, I know many, many investors are turned off. They talk about, you know, you're, you're relying on government uh, for, for, for business. And, that's, and thankfully not. Yeah. Uh, but the other set of people are these big MNCs that themselves are in the agri-business space, probably upstream processes who mm-hmm. benefit to have their own, you know, contract farming network. And that's how they manage their own contract farming sure. network. Sure. So one of the low line fruits is with our current investor, Jaffa, who's already, you know, having a lot of, uh, you know, chicken farms mm-hmm. uh, in Indonesia. And they need to work with a lot of farmers that grow corn because chickens eat corn, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, these are some of the low-lying fruits or an example of a profile of an organization that could you know, easily deploy and, and with much faster than a government agency uh, to get into a uh, white-labored co-farm space where they are contract farming certain things that they need for their own operations. Mm, okay. Very, very cool. Let, let, me, let me wrap up here with a couple of the closing questions, the typical closing questions that I ask everyone. Uh, so the first one is, is there a tech tool that you just can't live without to build your business? Yeah. When you, when you mentioned that this is going to be one of the questions, I was thinking, can I say my own? <laughs> <laughs> We've effectively built DDFN as a tool that we use. Without DDFN, we cannot manage we cannot a decentralized co farms, right? That's how we manage our farms, that's how we manage all their needs. Uh, our operations, our own admin executives, both front office, back office, on farm and in, in KL, uh, day in, day out, they're using DDFN to do what we do. So if you ask me one tech tool <laughs> that I cannot live without, that's the one that I built. It didn't but exist I suspect, at first, you built it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe it's going to be the next, uh, what's that, Slack, is it? Started yeah. as, a, as a tool that they use themselves, right? But I suspect you're asking, you know, what kind of, Enabling yeah, maybe an external tool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we use a patchwork of many free tools, uh, each one for its own purpose. You know, from wiki to virtual offices. Because um, most of our we just came out from COVID. Yeah, some argue that not yet still, uh, but the last two and a half years had really been remote. So mm. we have a virtual office. We have wikis. We have mainly remote technologies, collaborative mm. tools. Uh, that we use to help the team work together. Okay, very cool. Mm. Very cool. Uh, So the second one, the last question is, if you were to talk to another founder that's just getting started out, what would be the biggest piece of advice that you could offer? Mm. So many. (laughs) Be very sure that you're set up in life to do what you have decided to start, uh, depending on which stage of life this person is at. You know, uh, 
um, be it finances, be it family support, wife or children, you know, you will need to know that by stepping up as a startup founder, you're doing something which most of our population don't. And it is a brave move and it can be a very rewarding move. It can be outsized returns. But be very prepared that most of us don't reach that goal. There's a lot of suffering for perhaps the same or lesser result if you're stuck to the usual route to get a job, do well in it. Uh, I applaud you. You have decided on something which many wouldn't have chosen and, and, and I wish you luck. But you need to know to succeed, to even have a remote chance at succeeding, your life must be set up to support what you're going to do within the next one, two, three years. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, there's a there's a number of founders out there that just gets get started that come in with these rose tinted glasses, having read like some of the tech blogs, which highlight some of the <laughs> mostly the positive stories, and you don't realize oftentimes it is incredibly difficult to build mm. a startup, and the demand on the individuals that are the leadership is extremely difficult. So like family situation, your finances, you may not be able to draw a salary for a while. You may end up working full nights. You may have to travel, all of that. I think it's incredibly uh, insightful for you to highlight that as as a key piece of advice. And everything in life just simply takes more effort. Keep up with friends, keep up with family. You just have to just draw from somewhere deep to still you know, make sure that you keep a balance. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's tough on, on, on that note, Chris, thank you so much for being here. This has been a fantastic conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. Cool. Excellent. Thank you very much. All right, that wraps it up for another fantastic episode of the sea of startups. If you've enjoyed this episode, Please share it with a friend, go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get discovered and to have these startup stories reach a broader audience. If you have any suggestions or would like to get in touch, you can email me at kevin at indelible.vc. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Rockland from Indelible Ventures, and this is the Sea of Startups.